Chapter 12 Daniel Rowlands, The Man One of the greatest spiritual champions of the eighteenth century, whom I wish to introduce to you now, is one who is very little known. That man is Daniel Rowlands of Llangetho in Cardiganshire in Wales. Thousands of my countrymen, I suspect, who are somewhat familiar with Whitefield, Wesley, and Romaine, have never even heard the name of the great apostle of Wales. It shouldn't surprise us that this is the case. Rowlands was a Welsh clergyman, and he seldom preached in the English language. He resided in a very remote part of the territory, and he hardly ever came to London. His ministry was almost entirely among the middle and lower classes in about five counties in Wales. These circumstances alone are enough to account for the fact that so few people know anything about him. Whatever the reasons might be, there are not many Englishmen who understand Welsh, or can even pronounce the names of the parishes where Rowlands used to preach. In the face of these circumstances, we have no right to be surprised if his reputation has been confined to the land of his birth. In addition to all this, we must remember that no biographical account of Rowlands was ever written by his contemporaries. Materials for such an account were gathered together by one of his sons and were forwarded to Lady Huntingdon. Her death, unfortunately, immediately afterward, prevented these materials from being used, and no one knows what happened to them after her death. The only memoirs of Rowlands are two short biographies written by clergymen in the nineteenth century. They are both excellent and useful in their way, but of course they labor under the disadvantage of having been drawn up long after the mighty subject of them had passed away. These two volumes, and some very valuable information that I have succeeded in obtaining from a kind correspondent in Wales, are the only mines of matter to which I have had access in drawing up this memoir. Enough, however, and more than enough, exists to prove that Daniel Rowlands, in the highest sense, was one of the spiritual giants of the eighteenth century. It is a fact that Lady Huntingdon, a skilled judge of clergymen, had the highest opinion of Rowlands. Few people had better opportunities of forming a judgment of preachers than she had, and she thought Rowlands was second only to Whitefield. It is a fact that no British preacher of the eighteenth century kept together in one district such enormous congregations of souls for fifty years as Rowlands did. It is a fact, above all, that no man at that time seems to have preached with such unmistakable power of the Holy Spirit accompanying him as Rowlands. These are great isolated facts that cannot be disputed. Like the few scattered bones of extinct mammoths and mastodons, they speak volumes to all who have an ear to hear. They tell us that, in considering and examining Daniel Rowlands, we are dealing with no common man. Daniel Rowlands was born in the year 1713 at Pantiboidi in the parish of Llanhwynli near Llangetho, Cardiganshire. He was the second son of the Reverend Daniel Rowlands, minister of Llangetho, by Janet, his wife. When he was a child of three years old, he, like John Wesley, narrowly escaped death. A large stone fell down the chimney on the very spot where he had been sitting two minutes before, which, had he not providentially moved from his place, would have certainly killed him. Nothing else is known of the first twenty years of his life, except that he received his education at Hereford Grammar School, 
and that he lost his father when he was eighteen years old. Based upon a record in Llangetho Church, it appears that when Rowlands was born, his father was fifty-four and his mother was forty-five years old. His father's removal could not therefore have been a premature event, as he must have attained the ripe age of seventy-two. For some reason of which we can give no account, Rowlands seems not to have attended any university. His father's death might have made a difference in the circumstances of the family. At any rate, the next fact we hear about him after his father's death is his ordination in London at the early age of twenty in the year 1733. He was ordained by letters de missary from the Bishop of St. David's, and it is recorded, as a curious proof both of his poverty and his earnestness of character, that he went to London on foot. The title on which Rowlands was ordained was that of curate, or assistant, to his older brother John, who had succeeded his father and held the three adjacent livings of Thlangetho, Thlancunli, and Thlandewibriffi. He seems to have entered on his ministerial duties like thousands in his day, without the slightest adequate sense of his responsibilities and utterly ignorant of the gospel of Christ. According to Rev. John Owen, who wrote one of the memoirs of Daniel Rowland's life, he was a good classical scholar and had made rapid progress at Hereford School in all secular learning. But in the neighborhood where he was born and began his ministry, he is reported never to have given any proof of fitness to be a minister. He was only known as a man remarkable for natural enthusiasm, of middle size, of a firm build, of quick and nimble action, very skilled and successful in all games and athletic amusements, and as ready as anyone, after doing duty in church on Sunday morning, to spend the rest of God's day in sports and other amusement, if not in drunkenness. Such was the character of the great Apostle of Wales for some time after his ordination. He was never likely afterward to forget Paul's words to the Corinthians, Scripture, Such were some of you, 1 Corinthians 6.11, or to doubt the possibility of anyone's conversion. The precise time and manner of Roland's conversion are points involved in much obscurity. According to Edward Morgan, the first thing that awakened him out of his spiritual slumber was the discovery that no matter how well he tried to preach, he could not keep one of his congregations from being completely thinned by a dissenting minister named Pew. This made him change his preaching and adopt a more awakening and alarming style of sermons. According to Owen, he was first brought to himself by hearing a well-known excellent clergyman named Griffith Jones preach at Thlandewy Brephy. On this occasion, his appearance, as he stood in the crowd before the pulpit, is said to have been so full of vanity, conceit, and levity that Mr. Jones stopped in his sermon and offered a special prayer for him that God would touch his heart and make him an instrument for turning souls from darkness to light. This prayer is said to have had an immense effect on Rowlands, and he is reported to have been a different man from that day. I do not attempt to reconcile the two accounts. I can quite believe that both are true. When the Holy Spirit takes in hand the conversion of a soul, He often causes a variety of circumstances to coincide and cooperate in producing it. This, I am sure, would be the testimony of all experienced believers. Owen got hold of one set of facts and Morgan of another. Both happened probably about the same time, and both are probably true. 
One thing, at any rate, is very certain. From about the year 1738, when Rowlands was twenty-five, a complete change came over his life and ministry. He began to preach like a man in earnest, and to speak and act like one who had found out that sin, death, judgment, heaven, and hell were great realities. Gifted beyond most men with bodily and mental qualifications for the work of the pulpit, he began to consecrate himself wholly to it, and threw himself, body, soul, and mind, into his sermons. The consequence, as might be expected, was an enormous amount of popularity. The churches where he preached were crowded to suffocation. The effect of his ministry, in the way of awakening and stirring up sinners, was something tremendous. The biographer Edward Morgan wrote, The impression on the hearts of most people was that of awe and distress, and as if they saw the end of the world drawing near, and hell ready to swallow them up. His fame soon spread throughout the country, and people came from all parts to hear him. Not only the churches were filled, but also the churchyards. It is said that numbers of the people lay down on the ground in the churchyard of Llanhwrnli under deep conviction, and it was not easy for a person to pass by without stumbling against some of them. At this very time, however strange it might seem, it's clear that Rowlands did not preach the full gospel. His testimony was unmistakably truth, but still it was not the whole truth. He painted the spirituality and condemning power of the law in such vivid colors that his hearers trembled before him, and cried out for mercy. But he did not yet lift up Christ crucified in all his fullness as a refuge, a physician, a redeemer, and a friend. Therefore, although many were wounded, they were not healed. It's very difficult now to say how long he continued preaching in this way. As far as I can tell by comparing dates, this went on for about four years. I have no doubt that the work that he did for God in this period was exceedingly useful as a preparation for the message of later days. I, for one, believe that there are places, times, seasons, and congregations in which powerful preaching of the law is of the greatest value. I strongly suspect that many evangelical congregations in the present day would be immensely benefited by a broad, powerful exhibition of God's law. However, it's very evident from the scattered accounts that remain of his ministry that there was too much law in Roland's preaching for four years after his conversion, both for his own comfort and for the good of his hearers. The means by which the mind of Roland's was gradually led into the full light of the gospel have not been fully explained by his biographers. The simplest explanation will likely be found in our Lord Jesus Christ's words, If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. John 7, 17. Rollins was evidently a man who honestly lived up to his light, and who followed on to know the Lord. His master took care that he did not long walk in darkness, but showed him the light of life. John 8, 12. One main instrument of guiding Rollins into the whole truth was that same Mr. Pugh, who, at an earlier period, had thinned his congregation. He took great interest in Rollins at this critical era in his spiritual history, and gave him much excellent advice. Preach the gospel, dear sir, he would say. Preach the gospel to the people, and apply the balm of Gilead, the blood of Christ, to their spiritual wounds, and show the necessity of faith in the crucified Saviour. Happy indeed are young ministers who have an Aquila or Priscilla near them.
and are willing to listen to good advice when they get it. The friendship of the eminent layman Howell Harris, with whom Rollins became acquainted about this time, was no doubt a great additional help to his soul. In one way or another, the great apostle of Wales was gradually led into the full noonday light of Christ's truth, and about the year 1742, at the age of thirty, he became established as the preacher of an exceptionally full, free, clear, and well-balanced gospel. The effect of Rowland's ministry from this time forward to the end of his life was something so vast and amazing that it almost takes away one's breath to hear of it. Sadly, we see such very little spiritual influence in the present day, and the operations of the Holy Spirit appear confined within such narrow limits and reach so few people that the harvests reaped at Slangetho under Rowland's ministry sound almost incredible. But the evidence of the results of his preaching is so abundant and conclusive that there is no room left for doubt. Rollins was made a blessing to hundreds of souls. People used to flock to hear him preach from every part of the principality and would think nothing of travelling fifty or sixty miles for this purpose. On sacrament Sundays, it was not uncommon for him to have fifteen hundred, two thousand, or even twenty five hundred communicants. The people on these occasions would go together in companies, like the Jews going up to the temple feast in Jerusalem, and would return home afterward singing hymns and psalms on their journey, caring nothing for fatigue. It is useless to try to account for these effects of the great Welsh preacher's ministry, as many do, by calling them religious excitement. Such people would do well to remember that the influence that Rowlands had over his hearers was an influence that never diminished for at least forty-eight years. It had its ebbs and flows, no doubt, and rose on several occasions to the spring tide of revivals, but at no time did his ministry appear to be without immense and unparalleled results. According to Charles of Bala and many other unexceptionable witnesses, it seemed just as attractive and effective when he was seventy years old as it was when he was fifty. When we recollect, moreover, the remarkable fact that on Sundays at least Rollins was very seldom absent from Frangetho, and that for forty-eight years he was constantly preaching on the same spot, and not, like Whitefield and Wesley, always addressing different congregations, we must surely acknowledge that few preachers have had such extraordinary spiritual success since the days of the Apostles. Of course, it would be absurd to say that there was no excitement, unsound profession, hypocrisy, and false fire among the thousands who crowded to hear Rowlands. There was much, no doubt, as there always will be when large crowds of people are gathered together. Nothing, perhaps, is so infectious as a kind of sham, sensational Christianity, and particularly among unlearned and ignorant people. The Welsh, too, are notoriously an excitable people. No one, however, was more fully alive to these dangers than the great preacher himself, and no one could warn his hearers more incessantly that the Christianity that was not practical was unprofitable and vain. But, after all, the effects of Rowland's ministry were too plain and evident to be mistaken. There is clear and overwhelming evidence that the lives of many of his hearers were vastly improved after hearing him preach, and that sin was reduced and distinct knowledge of Christianity increased to an immense extent throughout the land. It will surprise no Christian to hear that, 
From an early period, Rowlands found it impossible to confine his labours to his own parish. The state of the country was so deplorable as to religion and morality, and the requests he received for help were so many that he felt he had no choice in the matter. The circumstances under which he first began preaching out of his own neighbourhood are so interesting, as described by Owen, that I will give his words in full. There was a farmer's wife in Istradfin, in the county of Carmarthen, who had a sister living near Thangetho. This woman came at times to see her sister, and on one of these occasions she heard some strange things about the clergyman of the parish, that is, Rowlands. The common saying was that he was not right in his mind. However, she went to hear him, and not in vain. But she said nothing then to her sister or to anybody else about the sermon, and she returned home to her family. The following Sunday she came again to her sister's home at Thlangetho. What is the matter? asked her sister, in great surprise. Are your husband and your children well? She feared, from seeing her again so soon and so unexpectedly, that something unpleasant had happened. Oh, yes, was the reply. Nothing of that kind is wrong. Again she asked her, What then is the matter? To this she replied, I don't really know what is the matter. Something that your cracked clergyman said last Sunday has brought me here today. It stuck in my mind all week and didn't leave me night nor day. She went again to hear Rowlands and continued to come every Sunday, even though her road was rough and mountainous, and her home was more than twenty miles from Flangetho. After continuing to hear Rowlands for about six months, she felt a strong desire to ask him to come and preach at Istradfin. She made up her mind to try. After service one Sunday, she went to Rowlands and approached him in the following manner. Sir, if what you say to us is true, there are many in my neighborhood in a most dangerous condition, going fast to eternal misery. For the sake of their souls, come over, sir, to preach to them. The woman's request took Rowlands by surprise, but without a moment's hesitation he said, in his usual quick way, Yes, I will come, if you can get the clergyman's permission. This satisfied the woman, and she returned home as much pleased as if she had found some rich treasure. She took the first opportunity of asking her clergyman's permission, and easily succeeded. The next Sunday she went joyfully to Thlangetho, and informed Rollins of her success. According to his promise, he went over and preached at Istradfin, and his very first sermon there was wonderfully blessed. Not less than thirty people, it said, were converted that day. Many of them afterward came regularly to hear him at Thlangetho. From this time forth, Rowlands never hesitated to preach outside his own parish wherever a door of usefulness was opened. When he could, he preached in churches. When churches were closed to him, he would preach in a room, in a barn, or in the open air. However, at no period of his ministerial life, does he appear to have been as much of an itinerant as some of his contemporaries. He rightly judged that hearers of the gospel needed to be built up as well as awakened, and for this work he was especially well qualified. Therefore, no matter what he did on weekdays, he was generally found at Thlangetho on Sundays. The circumstances under which he first began the practice of field preaching were no less remarkable than those under which he was called to preach at Stradfin. It appears that after his own conversion he felt great concern about the spiritual condition of his old companions in sin and amusement. Most of them were thoughtless and headstrong young men, who thoroughly disliked his penetrating sermons and refused at last to come to church at all. Their custom, says Owen, was to go on Sunday to a suitable place on one of the hills above Flangetho, 
and amuse themselves there with sports and games. Rollins tried all means to stop this sinful desecration of the Lord's Day, but for some time utterly failed. At last he determined to go there himself on a Sunday. Since these rebels against God would not come to him in church, he resolved to go to them on their own ground. He went therefore, and, suddenly breaking into the ring as a cockfight was going on, addressed them powerfully and boldly about the sinfulness of their conduct. The effect was so great that not a tongue was raised to answer or oppose him, and from that day the Sabbath assembly in that place was completely given up. For the rest of his life, Rowlands never hesitated, when occasion required, to preach in the open air. The work outside of his own parish that Rowlands did by his itinerant preaching was carefully followed up and not allowed to fall to the ground. No one understood better than he did that souls require almost as much attention after they are awakened as they do before, and that in spiritual agriculture there is need of watering as well as planting. Aided, therefore, by a few zealous fellow laborers, both laymen and clergy, he established a regular system of societies based upon John Wesley's plan throughout the greater part of Wales, through which he managed to keep up constant communication with all who valued the gospel that he preached and to keep them well together. These societies were all connected with one great association that met four times a year, and of which he was generally the moderator. The degree of his influence at these association meetings can be measured by the fact that more than one hundred ministers in the land regarded him as their spiritual father. From the very beginning, this association seems to have been a most wisely organized and useful institution, and the existence of the Calvinistic Methodist body in Wales at this very day can be traced back to it. The mighty instrument whom God employed in doing all the good works I have been describing was not permitted to do them without many trials. For wise and good ends, no doubt to keep him humble in the midst of his immense success, and to prevent his being too much exalted, he was called upon to drink many bitter cups. Like his divine master, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Isaiah 53, 3. The greatest of these trials, no doubt, was his ejection from the Church of England in 1763 after serving that church faithfully for next to nothing as an ordained clergyman for thirty years. The manner in which this disgraceful transaction was accomplished was so remarkable that it deserves to be fully described. Rowlands, it must be remembered, was never the official parish pastor. From the time of his ordination in 1733 he was simply curate, or assistant, of Frangetho, under his elder brother John until the time of his death in 1760. It is not very clear what kind of a clergyman his elder brother was. He was drowned at Aberystwyth, and we only know that for twenty-seven years he seems to have left everything at Thangetho in Daniel's hands, and to have let him do just what he liked. Upon the death of John Rowlands, the bishop was asked to give the position to his brother Daniel, upon the very reasonable ground that he had been serving the parish as curate no less than twenty-seven years. The bishop unhappily refused to comply with this request, using the excuse that he had received many complaints about his irregularities. He took the very strange step of giving the living to John, the son of Daniel Rowlands, a young man twenty-seven years old. 
The result of this very odd proceeding was that Daniel Rowlands became the assistant to his own son, just as he had been assistant to his own brother, and he continued his labors at Thangetho uninterruptedly for three more years. The reasons why the Bishop of St. David's refused to give Rowlands the living of Thangetho may be easily understood. As long as he was only a curate, he knew that he could easily silence him. Once instituted and inducted as the official minister, he would have occupied a position from which he could not have been removed without much difficulty. Influenced, probably, by considerations such as these, the bishop allowed Rowlands to continue preaching at Thangetho as assistant to his son, warning him at the same time that the Welsh clergy were constantly complaining of his irregularities, and that he could not long ignore them. These irregularities, it should be remembered, were neither drunkenness, breaking the seventh commandment, hunting, shooting, or gambling. The whole substance of his offence was preaching out of his own parish wherever he could get hearers. To the bishop's threats, Rowlands replied that he had nothing in view but the glory of God in the salvation of sinners, and that, as his labours had been so much blessed, he could not give up this practice. At last, in the year 1763, the fatal step was taken. The bishop sent Rowlands a mandate revoking his license, and was actually foolish enough to have it served on a Sunday. The niece of an eyewitness describes what happened in the following words. My uncle was at Tlangetho Church that very morning. A stranger came forward and served Mr. Rowlands with a notice from the bishop, at the very time when he was stepping into the pulpit. Mr. Rowlands read it and told the people that the letter he had just received was from the bishop revoking his license. Mr. Rowlands then said, We must obey the church authorities. Let me beg you to go out quietly, and then we will conclude the service by the church gate. And so they walked out, weeping and crying. My uncle thought there was not a dry eye in the church at the moment. Mr. Rowlands accordingly preached outside the church with extraordinary effect. It is literally impossible to imagine a more miserable, poorly timed, foolish act of ecclesiastical power than this. Here was a man of remarkable gifts and graces, who had no objection to anything in the articles or prayer book, cast out of the Church of England for no other fault than excess of zeal. Even more, this ejection took place at a time when dozens of Welsh clergymen were shamefully neglecting their duties, and too often were drunkards, gamblers, and sportsmen, if not worse. It is very poor consolation indeed that the bishop later bitterly repented of what he did. It was too late. The deed was done. Rowlands was shut out of the Church of England, and an immense number of his people all over Wales followed him. A breach was made in the walls of the established church that will probably never be healed. As long as the world stands, the Church of England in Wales will never get over the injury done to it by the ridiculous and foolish revocation of Daniel Rowland's license. There is every reason to believe that Rowlands felt his expulsion most intensely. However, it made no difference whatsoever in his line of action. His friends and followers soon built him a large and spacious chapel in the parish of Flangetho, and migrated there as a group. Rowlands didn't even leave the Flangetho parsonage, for his son, being the minister, 
allowed him to reside there as long as he lived. In fact, the Church of England lost everything by ejecting him, and gained nothing at all. The great Welsh preacher was never silenced practically for even a single day, and the Church of England only reaped a harvest of shame and dislike in Wales that is bearing fruit to this very hour. From the time of his ejection to his death, the course of Roland's life seems to have been comparatively undisturbed. No longer persecuted and snubbed by ecclesiastical superiors, he held on his way for twenty-seven years in great quietness, undiminished popularity, and immense usefulness, and died at last in the Thlangetho Parsonage on October 16, 1790, at the age of seventy-seven. He was unwell during the last year of his life, says Morgan, but was able to go on with his ministry at Thlangetho, although he scarcely went anywhere else. It was his special desire that he would go directly from his work to his everlasting rest, and not be kept long on a deathbed. His heavenly Father was pleased to grant his desire, and when his departure was drawing near, he had some pleasing idea of his approaching end. One of his children has supplied the following interesting account of his last days. My father made the following observations in his sermons two Sundays before his departure. He said, I'm almost leaving, and am on the point of being taken from you. I'm not tired of work, but in it. I have some expectation that my heavenly Father will soon release me from my labors and bring me to my everlasting rest, but I hope that he will continue his gracious presence with you after I'm gone. He told us, speaking about his departure after worship the last Sunday, that he would like to die in a quiet, peaceful manner, and hoped that he would not be disturbed by our sighs and crying. He added, I have no more to state by way of acceptance with God than I have always stated. I die as a poor sinner, depending fully and entirely on the merits of a crucified Saviour for my acceptance with God. In his last hours he often used the expression that Wesley used on his deathbed, God is with us, and finally departed in great peace. Daniel Rowlands was buried at Thlangetho, at the east end of the church. His enemies could shut him out of the pulpit, but not out of the churchyard. An old inhabitant of the parish, now eighty-five years of age, says, I well remember his tomb, and many times I read the inscription, his name and age, with that of his wife's, Eleanor, who died a year and two months after her husband. The stone was laid on a three-foot wall, but it's now worn out by the hand of time. Rollins was once married. It is believed that his wife was the daughter of Mr. Davies of Glenwchshaf, near Thangetho. He had seven children who survived him, and two who died in infancy. What became of all his family, and whether there are any lineal descendants of his, I have been unable to accurately determine. The engraving of him that faces the title page of the memoirs written by Morgan and Owen gives one the idea of Rowland's being a serious and solemn-looking man. It was probably taken from his portrait that Lady Huntington had an artist paint at the very end of his life. The worthy old saint did not at all like having his portrait taken. "'Why do you object, sir?' said the artist. "'Why?' replied Rowland's with great emphasis. "'I am only a bit of clay like yourself.' And then he exclaimed, "'Alas, alas, alas!' taking the picture of a poor old sinner, alas, alas. His countenance, says Morgan, changed and fell at once, and this is the reason why the picture appears so heavy and cast down. I have other things still to tell about Rollins, 
such as his preaching and the many characteristic anecdotes about him that deserve special notice. But I will leave these things for the next chapter.